You are listening in on LEAP. Today we're starting the conversation about the DIR floor time model, or the Developmental Individual Difference Relationship-Based Model, with LEAP Forward's Director of Speech and Language Pathology, Tyler Schott. Okay, so we talk a lot at LEAP about DIR, and I think in this space, and I think... And I think there's a lot of books and a lot of recommended reading for families and all of that. But can you start with just a basic overview of what if we are doing a series on this podcast of what DIR is? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just kind of thinking about it from like a global perspective or, you know, kind of thinking broadly. At first. Oh, yeah. Broadly at first. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I was just thinking about what you said a, a second ago talking about how obviously you know we talk about DIR at LEAP because it's a foundation in terms of our therapeutic philosophy and the way that we think about children and their families and their development Um, but you mentioned it it was interesting that you mentioned that you know LEAP is not the only place that talks about DIR it's a something that lots of folks are talking about um, and talking about in terms of treating uh, a range of children and families who are faced with all kinds of different challenges Mm -hmm. Um, and you're right it is a word and a um, an idea that gets brought up a lot and I think that's something really important to talk about and maybe a good place for us to start but you know the R in DIR stands for relationships and DIR is a relationship focused philosophy and it really has relationships and interpersonal interactions and interpersonal relationships um, at the root of everything that we talk about in DIR. It all starts with relationships. And I think one of the reasons why we hear, we're hearing so much more about DIR right now is because so many other spaces, so many other fields are starting to recognize the power of relationships. Mm -hmm. Not even thinking about DIR, floor time, or play therapy, or sensory integration, or all these other buzzwords that we hear. Not even thinking about those but so many other areas like the the whole world of education is really turned on right now by this idea of relationships how do we how do we get children and families to invest their time and energy in relationships between kids and teachers how do we get Mm. kids and how do we use the relationships between the child and the parent to affect student learning in the classroom so it's it's happening there it's happening corporately it's happening everywhere Mm -hmm. everyone is really right now just kind of paying attention to this idea of we need to capitalize on relationships and the power of relationships and how people are invested in each other um, to make change happen and to make things move. So I think like right now is just like a beautiful time to be watching DIR and to be paying attention to it because the whole world right now is paying attention to, to relationships. And, you know, in our space, we, we know, and we've believed for a long time, that relationships is how to make a change for a child who's having a developmental challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's how to make a change for so many people and in so many areas. Does that make sense? It does. Um, so yeah, that's where we that's where we start when we think about the DIR model is thinking about relationships. Um, and that's where it started in its inception a long time ago. Uh, so the model was, the model was kind of theorized by Stanley Greenspan, Mm -hmm. um, who's now no longer with us, and and his colleague Serena Weeder, who is still with us, and researching and teaching and practicing. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and the two of them, you know, they got together in the like late 70s, early 80s, and they really started to churn some of this work out. And all the way back then, it was super, super concerned with uh, relationships and how we can help not just children develop, but how do we help the whole family unit develop and how do we engage the whole family unit to create positive change for the child and for the parent. Um, and so that's that's really where where this all this work came from was thinking about the relationships um, way back then when the work began um, and you know we've we've heard a lot of stories about the history of dir in, in the in the field and we've heard lots of different people who were around during the inception kind of talk about where it came from so i'm not going to pretend like i know <laughs> you know all mm -hmm. of those stories or can appreciate it like some other folks can but um I know that some of the early, early work was born out of um, interest in families who were exposed to lots and lots of risk factors. So Stanley Greenspan and Serena Weeder called those multi-risk families. And so we were talking about young children who were born into families that were experiencing poverty, that were experiencing violence, that were experiencing um, developmental problems and lots and lots of risk factors that that might make childhood a difficult time um, and so that was some of the original work that they were looking at and they looked at those families and uh, they tracked development for those kids and they compared it to what we already knew about development um, and and they, they kind of use some of that data and some of that research to form the beginning of the model and to start thinking about um, how are we going to change the way that we're looking at, at children and their development. And one of the major goals of that early research was to move out of out of what Serena calls silos. Si you know, we, we a lot of times we think about development in terms of silos. And so what, what Serena means when she talks about um, the silo model for looking at development is that we, we, we section off all of the different areas of development and kind of consider them only as one tiny little piece. So we look at language development and we look at how kids learn to use words. Okay. And then we look at motor development and we learn about how kids learn to uh, hold their heads up and then they learn to crawl and then they learn to stand and cruise and walk. Okay. Um, and so we, we, have a whole team of professionals, occupational and physical therapists, who look at that motor development piece. And then we have a whole other set of people who look just at the social and emotional development, right? Just at the relationships and how do children learn to have a range of emotions and um, learn to feel and experience that range of emotions and, and how do they regulate around those emotions, all those things. Mm -hmm. And so what the, the goal for the early work in DIR was helping the community and helping professionals to move away from that silo view because the challenge with the silo view is that it forces us to look at deficits. It, and, and the goal of DIR was to find a way to view children to find strengths and help children grow from strengths. Identify the strengths first and then help children grow from that. And so 
there was a big problem because the way we kept looking at children was in this silo method. And you're mm -hmm. super familiar with this because anytime you go to the doctor's office and you're asked to kind of fill out one of those forms, it's like check boxes, right? Yeah, Has right. your child, when did your child first learn to talk? When did your child first learn to use one word? When did your child stand? Mm -hmm. um, and we're looking at this kind of like ages and stages model. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we do that, we're immediately paying attention to the what's going wrong. We're right. immediately paying attention to the deficits. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where, and if we start there, there's gonna be a big challenge down the road. If we're starting at what kids can't do, mm -hmm. um, we're gonna keep finding things that kids can't do. And I think that a lot of people in the DIR community would commiserate with me when I say that we can get a lot more done if we start with what kids can do. Okay. And so that's what the, the idea was early on, I think, and it's still still the idea today. So um, when we move away from the silo kind of model and we move into viewing kids holistically and looking at what children can do, mm -hmm. where, where are we starting? I walk into a room and I see a three-year-old who is um, pretending to make some soup in a pot you know he's stirring the spoon in the in the pot mm -hmm. um, I think not necessarily what's he not doing in that moment maybe he's not using words in that moment let's say um, so instead of writing down in my notes I haven't heard a single word yet he's nonverbal the things that I do write down is I see him and what he can do is put the spoon in the pot and stir it up mm -hmm. That's what he can do. And then I use my knowledge of development to think about what can the child, what should the child be able to do next? What's one step up from stirring the, the spoon in the pot? Maybe it's offering mom a bite of whatever the soup is. Um, and so we try to push to see if the child can do that. And we see where he can go and where he taps out. And then once we find that, once we find what he can do and try to push up the ladder and then figure out where the development stops, that's when we know how to jump in and kind of boost things up. That's where I know where to start the therapy. Got it. Um, does that, that make Yeah, sense? that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the general developmental model mm -hmm. that, um, that we started kind of working from. Now... There's a whole, the whole other podcast worth of stuff. I mean, we can do, we're going to do a whole series because I think, I mean, I've been working at Leap for a year and I have read things about DIR and I have, I'm surrounded by brilliant therapists and I, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not being taught by therapists on a daily mm -hmm. method of what this is, but this is you slowing it down in that in giving me that glimpse mm -hmm. is a whole new perspective of what that actually right. should look right. like. You know, we already talked about the R being the, the relationships. The R and DIR is for relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, the D and DIR is for development. Mm -hmm. And so what you and I have been talking about just now is the original kind of concept of how we're going to frame development, child development, this progressing kind of level of capacities for each child. Um, you know, first kids are able to do one thing and then they're able to do something a little bit more complex and then more complex and more and more and more. And before you know it, they're 21 with a college degree and they're <laughs> going off to own a business. Um, that's development. That's how, and we track it. And so, you know, we have already kind of talked about how the goal and development for Stanley and Serena early on was to think about strengths, think about a strengths-based model, to think about a holistic model mm -hmm. out, you know, out of the silos and into this kind of holistic view of what children can do. Um, 
And the way that they talked about that, there's a really kind of systematic and easy way that they um, wrote about and that we learn about when we train in the DIR world. And they called that, the D, the, the D is for development, they called it um, the functional emotional developmental levels. We call them the FEDLs, functional emotional developmental levels. And they're kind of these, you know, overarching developmental capacities that mm -hmm. we see in children as they develop across time. And so early on, so instead of the silos, it's kind of like a mix of all of those things in a level. It. Yes, exactly. Uh, we're kind of familiar with this model already uh, in terms of the word milestones. Sometimes we talk about milestones. Mm -hmm. And so we see we hear things like, what are the, the motor milestones? The motor milestones are, you know, holds his head up by however many months, mm -hmm. uh, crawls by nine months, Roll, walks by rolling over, nine. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we think about the milestone model, it really makes us it really makes us uh, prioritize time. It really makes us pay attention to those those months markers, right? Mm -hmm. Crawls by nine months. Right. So if I have a nine month and 15 day old baby and he's not crawling. I am like that with my nieces where I was like, <laughs> get her on her feet. Right. <laughs> like what what's going on? Right. Yeah. And there's. Which um, I was told by like my coworkers. They were like, everyone was like, settle down, Ash. But I. I think it's drilled in our, it is. it's drilled in society it or like so, on the blogs yeah, so or ingrained. like that, like here's the, the things that you need to mm -hmm. be watching. And unfortunately it's so um, ingrained, like you said, into so many layers of society that it's re and it's the thickest in the medical model. Mm -hmm. And so when we go to the doctor's office and we're looking at those, you know, well visits, pediatrician well visits, and um, doctors are asking for those developmental milestones. I think so often parents are kind of checking these things and walking home with these worries mm -hmm. around, my kid is nine months and 15 days and he hasn't crawled yet, mm -hmm. you know? And our job in the developmental world, in the DIR world, is again, to not look at what a child's not doing, but to look at what a child is doing. And if he's doing all of the things, every single thing that it takes to do before you start to crawl, then my gut is to say, like, he's he's ready to crawl and he will crawl when he's ready mm -hmm. as long as nothing else is in the way. Um, but the problem with using a milestone kind of model for me is that when we see young kids who are off the trajectory when it comes to the milestones. So uses one word by 12 months is a common language milestone that we'll see. Uses one word by 12 months. If we use that kind of model to look at a child who is has a trajectory that's off base, off than what we would suspect. So let's think about a two-year-old child who's not yet using one word. Mm -hmm. um, a two-year-old child should be able to combine two words. That's what the, the language literature says. Uh, 24 months, children are starting to combine two words, like, bye, dada, when daddy goes to work. Um, mm -hmm. And if I have a two-year-old who's not using any words, then uh, the, the, the milestone says that he should be using two. 
So if you're using a milestone model as a therapist, then my, my guess is that the therapist is going to prioritize two-word utterances. Bye, Dada. Um, all done cookies. Shoes on. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things. That, that's what they would prioritize in a milestone model. But if the child is two years old and not using one word, and we skip that stage, if we forget to prioritize the earliest levels of development that are missing, mm-hmm. we're going to end up what I say is gouging a hole in the development. We're skipping, we're intentionally kind of passing over steps that should be in place that aren't. And so there's all these things that a kid is supposed to be able to do before he can use one word. He's supposed to be able to pay attention to you and imitate and look at your face and enjoy spending time with you and take turns back and forth all and understand what words mean all before he's able to say one word. And if the two-year-old still isn't doing some of those things mm-hmm. and we teach him to use two words at a time, then we're giving him skills that are not supported by a really healthy foundation underneath all those skills. For me, that's the big problem with the milestone model. And forgive me if this is, this feels like an ignorant question, but does that happen? I feel like that shouldn't happen. Well, Ashley. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like, like, can you, if a child is two and not using one word, like, how do you, how would you even get them to say two words and skip that? Exactly. Like, yeah, I don't think that would, this feels like a dumb question, but I like my brain (laughs) is not wrapping around that as like a, you know, my brain doesn't wrap around it much either, (laughs) but I think we should go back to what you just mentioned earlier is that this milestone model is so ingrained. So it's like coaching, just saying like by Dada versus, all of the things that all of the 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 back and forth mm-hmm. game of even like like a peekaboo, peek-a-boo game that was yeah, yeah i was gonna say peekaboo exactly. like just like that kind of yeah okay we're gonna play this game of reciprocity first uh-huh. and then using words that the therapists <laughs> use oh my god look at me it <laughs> just came out naturally um and then we could eventually get to you got it that mm-hmm. Yeah, but so often we're we find so often we're tempted into skipping steps because we want our kids to be performing at the top of their development. You know, we want our kids to be doing the best that they can do. And if he's 2 years old, then mm-hmm. I want him to do the best thing that a 2-year-old can do. But um, sometimes if you follow that milestone model, you you could end up missing steps. And I, I think we are, we're hopeful and we are, we want the best and we want to help. And um, sometimes that, I think, again, tempts us into prioritizing goals that are <clears throat> in a, just inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that things that kids are not ready to do yet. Um, and I think we get tricked into doing that because of this focus on the milestones right and like i think in coming from i'm not a parent but coming i have friends a lot of friends that are parents i think even just societal pressure of mommy friends and Uh my kids doing this and this is what's happening of like oh my god this this needs to happen walk 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 or whatever Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. piece is um because i can you can see it happening with just parent 
pressure of I want my kid to perform at oh what gosh, the level that, that is again a whole nother podcast <laughs> worth of, of conversation but there is an unreal amount of shame and guilt that is pushed on parents for me in my opinion and you know I'm not a parent I don't have children I work with a lot of parents and I, I have lots of friends who are parents um, and so I get to see some of this firsthand but the amount of shame that I think media puts on especially moms, mm-hmm. especially women, but parents in general, mm-hmm. um, to be doing the best for their kids and to helping their kids be the best who they can be. And there's so much pressure on kids today, I think, to perform and to be mm-hmm. uh, the best and to be academic and to be smart and to be able to perform and be productive and polite. And that pressure, I think, really pushes us to the to do those kinds of things that we were just talking about mm-hmm. and you know i th- i think di the dir model and you know that's what we're talking about today <clears throat> i think dir has such a beautiful way of framing that piece of this conversation for families and i'm going to take you through the whole acronym now <laughs> we did the r for relationships the d for development the one that we missed was the i in the middle the i stands for individual differences and for me, that that part of the philosophy really gets at this issue that we're talking about, is that in DIR, what we're doing is helping families to understand the child's individual differences, the parts of his body, mind, whole life mm-hmm. that are different and unique to that child. Because we all walk through this world in a unique way. We all have unique ways of being and thinking and processing information. And when we start to help families unpack the I and unpack the individual profile of their child, we start to help them understand what is the best for this child. What can this child do at their best? Mm -hmm. Um, And what is he ready for right now? Um, And so for me, I think coming to know who the child is in a really, really intimate and unique way helps the family and helps the parents to understand what should I be expecting from this child right now? What is he ready to do today? Mm -hmm. And that, that will change in three months. That will change definitely in the next year um, because we're constantly developing. But I think that part of the program, that part of the philosophy helps parents to understand how to interact and behave and what to expect from their child at any given moment. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Yeah, I yeah. like that. Okay, so I guess I want to kind of introduce you to what we were kind of talking about earlier because this conversation is so uh, big and it can get so lofty and... Um, and Stanley and Serena really set us up in a really kind of organized way to really kind of sift through this stuff. Um, so like I said, we can we can unpack all of the, we were talking about the FEDLs, the Functional Emotional Developmental Levels, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of them. They numbered them. There's, so there's FEDL1, FEDL2, 3, 4, 5, and they keep going. Um, and maybe we could spend some time kind of... Um, learning more about each of the levels and how they progressed and why they were kind of put together in this way and how children progress through development according to these stages. Um, And I think 
when when we can help families to understand the the developmental levels or developmental capacities um, it helps to kind of organize i think all of this information sometimes dir can feel like this big thing that's hard to hold on to mm -hmm. and and it's supposed to because it's a it's a philosophy mm -hmm. it's not something that is like there's not a manual right you know, there is no driver's manual um it's it's a way of thinking it's a framework and so to organize it a bit and to make it a little bit more tangible stanley greenspan and serena weeder wrote down these functional and emotional developmental levels and that is the d the development of dir so um, i think it, it oftentimes helps parents to understand the model a little bit more um, by kind of going through the the levels and mm -hmm. there are you know, we can break them up or we could just cover one level or whatever you think uh, works for, for this conversation. But um, I think that's oftentimes a nice place to start mm -hmm. in having the conversation. Um, and then, you know, you can work all the way through the D and then we can have like a whole nother conversation just on the I mm -hmm. where we talk about individual differences and individual unique ways that kids walk through this world. Um, and then, you know, we could talk for days about relationships <laughs> for the the r that's the r is, that's every podcast we have <laughs> you got it. is the r you know for me i think the um i think there would be some merit in covering more than one level at a time okay because i think it's really really interesting and informative to think about how the levels link the, yeah the, to each other you know how one that. uh sets up the foundation for the next one okay uh and for me, I think that there's a lot of like learning in that space between two levels. Um, so it might make sense to, to cover more than one level if we have the time. Yeah. Um, um, well, then let's just kind of hit the ground running. With levels level one. one and, yeah. Let's hit the ground running level one. So uh, like I said, the the stages are these kind of global uh, things that all kids experience across time, all humans experience across time. Um, they're constantly in motion. They're constantly developing. It's not like we we do level one and then we say goodbye to it. You know, as an adult, I'm a 29 year old man. I'm still working on level one all the time. Mm -hmm. So we do level one and then we hold on to it. And, uh, it, and it evolves with us over time. And there are new challenges that threaten our abilities to hold on to levels at certain times. So level one is a, a, a place of, we're gonna be talking about regulation and staying organized. And so um, I, I don't drive anymore. I, when I moved to Chicago, I sold my car. So when I go home, I use my mom's car because she's so nice mm -hmm. and every time i get onto the highway level one is threatened for me <laughs> because it's hard it's hard for me to like remember how to drive and remember i feel anxious and i feel worried that i'm gonna crash at any given moment um and so so that's what i mean when i say the levels we hold on to them um, okay and so we have to kind of keep in mind our ways to best perform at, at the top of our capacities of all the levels all the time um but like i said Level one, FEDL one, is called regulation and shared attention. Um, we think about our ability to stay what we call regulated, um, and that's physiologically regulated, emotionally regulated, um, and maintain this ability to pay attention to the things that are important in our environment. Mm -hmm. And so 
we talk about this very early on in a very young baby's life. Um, this is a skill that becomes necessary for survival in a young baby's life very early on. So when I talk about that kind of, even the, the need for to survive for the young baby to kind of thrive in this world, they need to be able to regulate. And oftentimes for a young baby, that means regulate the, the ways that they get nutrients, the way that they um, let their caregiver know that they need to eat, let their caregiver know that they need a diaper change. Um, and, and we think about how the baby, the, a very young baby and their parent, go through that process together and how they um, come to that place of regulation, that organized, balanced state of I'm feeling good and I'm feeling like my body is getting what it needs right now. Um, and so for a young baby, oftentimes that, that might be hunger, right? Mm -hmm. Let's think about this like hunger scenario. Um, and some of my, inf I'm a, I've been doing some infant mental health training for a, a while now, and I have to read, uh, I've had to read this author, Daniel Stern. And Daniel Stern is this really interesting guy who, sometimes he writes from the perspective of a baby, of an infant. So he <laughs> writes as if he were a baby. Uh, it seems kind of weird at first. <laughs> it's definitely kind of weird at first. But when you read it, um, it re it's so enlightening. And so I'm remembering this one chapter in, in this book that he wrote called The Hunger Storm. And it was about, you know, he is this like little baby and he's experiencing the hunger storm. And so it's like, he's playing with his mom. It feels okay. He's noticing the rails in his crib. Everything feels good. And then out of nowhere, he's attacked by this feeling in his body that he can't locate and everything is crumbling and the world is turning <laughs> dark and it's hunger. All of a sudden there's this feeling in his body called hunger and he has no idea what it means. Everything feels different. His whole world is turned upside down. Uh, Daniel Stern called it the hunger storm. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he starts screaming and yelling and throwing this fit because he can't figure out what's going on in his body. And uh, his caregiver, his mom in this case, notices that fit that this baby is throwing and uh, says, oh, something must be wrong. <laughs> Something, something's going on here. And so she realizes very quickly that he's hungry. And so she comes over, they give him a bottle or she breastfeeds and, um, and all of a sudden the, the hunger starts to go away. Things start to feel more calm and organized. Things are feeling more regulated. Um, and that, that was that baby's regulation journey in those single little four minutes. You know, it took four minutes to talk about this whole little story. And, uh, the mom, in this case, read the baby's cue, understood that something was going really wrong, gave the baby what his body physically needed. His body physically needed more food. Um, she gave that to him, and now he starts to feel better. What they've just done is what we call co-regulation. Super early on, as infants, we need a caregiver to be responsive to us and to do the regulating for us. Mom had to give baby the food to regulate for him. He couldn't do it on his own mm -hmm. because he's too little. Babies can't feed themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we need partners who will co-regulate with us. So you can see from the very beginning of the model, stage one, it's the relationship is important. Mm -hmm. You got it. Yep. 
the parent has to be there. The parent has to be responsive um, to the baby's cue if we're going to let stage one happen. If this baby is ever going to get regulated, he needs somebody who can co-regulate with him. Now, we can expand this conversation to so many things beyond the hunger storm, right? It's, this can be, it's too bright outside. This can be, my jam jams have a thread that's loose and it's wrapped around my toe and nobody can see, but it really hurts. Mm -hmm. um, this can be, uh, I'm tired, I'm fussy, and I'm ready to go to sleep. Anything that is making my body feel out of balance. Sometimes it's, it's meeting a new person, meeting my aunt for the first time. Um, any of those kinds of things can throw babies off into this dysregulated state. Mm -hmm. Now keep in mind that the, the levels travel with us. So just like for me, when I'm driving on the highway, I feel dysregulated. Mm -hmm. uh, it's for a different reason. It's not because my body needs anything to survive, but it's because I'm emotionally uh, worried about what might happen to me in the car. Um, I'm having thoughts and feelings about what happens if I take this or if I, what if I get lost or what if Siri stops working? <laughs> um, the, all of those things dysregulate me. Mm -hmm. uh, for other folks, it's public speaking or, um, you know, any host of things mm -hmm. that can make us feel out of balance. Uh, even as adults, too, though, we can also have that physiological dysregulation as well. Hangry. Hangry. You got it. <laughs> so uh, you've experienced that. You know what it feels like. You're you're crabby. You are off balance. Uh, things are not going well. Eat a Snickers. You need a Snickers. <laughs> and that's uh, sometimes Snickers can be our co-regulator, too. Um, but the, the key and what you just, the example you just provided is that with time and experiences being co-regulated, you learn the skill of self-regulation mm -hmm. and you learn ways to regulate your own needs. And as an adult, that might be the use of a Snickers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so there are all kinds of ways that we learn to self-regulate and uh, when we're working with young children, a lot of times we have to work to find ways that children can self-regulate uh, in these moments where they're feeling off balance. Mm -hmm. And the whole goal of all of this regulatory stuff is to regulate their body and their whole beings so that they can pay attention to the things that are important that are going on in their life. Mm -hmm. And so for, if we take it back to the hunger storm, that little baby, he's screaming and crying and wailing and flipping and flailing and everything is going wrong. And then mom comes over and uh, so let's say starts to breastfeed and they have all of a sudden everything kind of quiets down and this baby's having this like nice moment where he's able to kind of look up at his mom and say like, ah, you're the person that's making this better right now. You're the person I need to pay attention to. And mom looks down at the baby and she shares this nice big bright smile with him and they have this really great tender moment where they're sharing this like face-to-face -face sweet interaction you don't have to share any words that may, mom might sing a song or or anything like that and uh and the baby knows that this is something to pay attention to mm -hmm. and so the goal of regulation is to have that shared attention um, and that's what we we call that that skill that capacity to share focus with someone else mm -hmm. to attend to a, a partner um, and so 
In therapy, when I walk into a room and I see a child who is bouncing all around the room and can't respond to his name um, and having a difficult time like doing one thing with me, that's a child who's having a regulatory problem. And so I have to think about ways to help him regulate or co-regulate with him uh, or find a, something that he can use to self-regulate and see if we can get the attention more shared. It doesn't have to be with me. Oftentimes, I am not the most important person in the room. If the parent is there, mm -hmm. then I want that child to share attention with the parent. Um, but that's the goal. That's the goal of all of this regulation stuff is to share attention with someone else, mm -hmm. which I think is the, the real key when you think about how level one sets you up for level two. So the next stage in the development is uh, one of the, f the funnest, the best stage for me. Uh, Stanley Greenspan called it falling in love. It's, uh, we, we refer to it as engagement today, but it's uh, this joy in the world, this, um, yeah, this falling in love, like he called it. That's such a, a fun way to think about it. But, uh, you know, if you think back about mom co-regulating the little baby and the baby can like look up at mom and see like oh you're the person that's keeping me safe you're the person that's making me feel better and share this smile this uh this stanley greenspan always talked about the gleam in the child's eye um that's engagement when we can have these moments where everything is feeling good everything's feeling better and we can share a moment of joy with someone else mm -hmm. sometimes all it takes is a smile a giggle a laugh um, what we want is for young kids to feel organized and regulated mm -hmm. and for us to sit in that goodness and smile about it mm -hmm. you know just feel okay feel good that's engagement. And so none of that's going to happen without that middle step, the shared attention. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to be kind of paying attention to something else uh, to kind of get that joy from it. And we have to teach young babies how to do it. We have to show them like, oh, this wind-up toy is really cool and fun. You can smile at it. Mm -hmm. And so when mom smiles at the wind-up toy, the baby realizes like, oh, this is not a scary thing. This is a safe thing. Mm -hmm. It's fun and it's silly and I'm going to play it again. Um, so it takes those, those shared moments of joy to kind of push the development along. Okay. Um, which I think really sets us up for level three. <laughs> so I, like I said, I like how they, they kind of link together and mm -hmm. I think it, it helps to tell the story. So in level one, we're feeling good, we're feeling organized and balanced and we're sharing attention with someone else. Um, in level two, the child is finding that mutual joy, that engagement with someone else. We call it engagement. Um, and then in level three, we're feeling so good about this moment that we're having and it feels so nice to our whole system that we want it to keep going. And so in level three, which we call reciprocity, where there's your buzzword, <laughs> we're doing something to keep that, to hold on to that moment, mm -hmm. do something that makes it last a little bit longer. And so if, if mom is breastfeeding that baby and the baby looks up at mom and they're sharing this nice, beautiful moment. Mom has a big smile on her face. Baby's feeling nourished and held together and protected. And mom hears the phone ring. So she turns her attention away. And the baby says, ah, you know, and gets mom's attention back. He's starting to become this 
agent that can act on the world and tell people, communicate with the world and say, hey, let's keep this thing going a little bit longer. So when I see um, an 18-month-old who I can throw a ball to and he thinks it's fun and interesting and he throws it back to me, he's beginning to be a reciprocal player. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who can communicate with me. Sometimes we call it uh, two-way communication, something that goes back and forth. And I think a lot of times parents or other professionals hear that word communication, and they think that the child needs to be able to talk to do two-way purposeful communication. No way. Mm-hmm. Uh, six-month-old babies sometimes can do two-way purposeful communication. That's when it begins oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And it just means that kids are able to kind of respond to the fun and interesting things that we do with them. So if we tickle them, and they laugh, that tells mom, hey, do it again. Mm -hmm. And then mom does it again, and then they laugh again. So mom does it again. Mm -hmm. And if we can get that going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, that's the goal of level three, reciprocity. Kind of having that back and forth communication. In circles. Circles of communication. That's oftentimes how we refer to it in DIR, Mm -hmm. floor time world. There's a group out of Harvard called the Harvard Center for the Developing Child. And they coined the same exact phenomenon, this back and forth thing. They call it serve and return. And they use this kind of uh, metaphor of like a tennis match. Classic Harvard. Classic Harvard. (laughs) With their metaphors. Um, With their tennis. That's where I was going, but sure. (laughs) Metaphors too. Um, And so it's a great... uh, metaphor and and you think about like the balls in my court I have to serve it over to the child if the child has the wherewithal to pick up their racket and send the ball back into my court then this is a kid who can do some back and forth Um, and one of the reasons why they they investigate serve and return at the center for the developing child Mm -hmm. and talk about serve and return is because it's what they call a foundational element of brain architecture. We need these back and forth experiences, the serve and return, to build up the connections in our brain that help us to make sense of the world, that help us to figure out how things work, Mm -hmm. to figure out how objects work together, to figure out who people are. We need to be able to go back and forth with a partner in order to learn more about what's going on. So it's a fundamental, fundamental we need that part of development. So when I see a child beyond the age of six months who is not responding to the environment, responding to the world around him, responding to the partners in his environment, his parents, me, uh, the fire alarm, the funky sound that he hears outside the door, if he's not responding to those things, then that's a place where I wanna jump in and help. I want to help this child to notice what's going on in his environment and respond to it. Mm-hmm. That's levels one through three. Love. Ish. Love. In like the briefest. It's snapshot. Snapshot. And for parents that are listening, we're, we'll do a series of, on DIR, we'll, we'll do the, do another series of levels and then um, we'll, also touch on the I and a little bit more on the R in some more listening in on leap podcasts with Tyler. Um, but in the meantime, there is um, access to Perfectum's free parent toolbox, Great which is a wonderful resource that we recommend to all of our parents at leap. Um, 
it's a video series and there's workbooks and it's a free um, toolbox basically online and you can find it uh, at Perfectum's website, um, which we will link on the on our website as well, which you can also find on our parent resource page, but I will also have it underneath our podcast um, everywhere that our, you can find our podcast so you guys can re- get into the levels and a little more um, access to some of this information. Just some some background on that project because I'm I love that project so much and I want people to know about it. So I'm just going to stand on my soapbox for one minute. Um, it is just this amazing resource for parents around the world. It's totally free and accessible to anyone that has an internet connection. Mm-hmm. Um, the goal was with that project to to offer support for parents who are having a difficult time accessing other professionals um, to find out new ways to interact with their child. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it was written and produced by DIR faculty and people who are kind of lighthouses in this profession. But the wonderful thing about it is that like, you don't hear the word DIR or floor time one time. It's not meant to be um, this kind of promotional thing that where parents learn how to do floor time. It's all about learning how to interact with your child and new ways to interact with your child. Um, and it's, it's just really accessible and easy to understand. Um, there's a lot of repetition. There's video that you can watch mm-hmm. of parents interacting with their children. Um, it's just super, super cool. It's a great, great um, resource. So, additionally, all the um, the graphics that are used in the in the web series, there are little like logos and all kinds of little animations and things, um, are produced by this really special company called Exceptional Minds that runs out of LA. I'm pretty sure. Um, and Exceptional Minds uh, exclusively hires adults who have autism. Um, and all of the graphics and all of the things that were additional to the, the content in the, in the web series are produced by the folks at Exceptional Minds, which is a really cool connection. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, Tyler, thank you so much. Yeah, this has been great, Ash. Thanks. Wonderful. Leap Forward is a pediatric developmental clinic and therapeutic preschool and transitional kindergarten operating in Chicago. With experts in occupational therapy, speech and language pathology, social work, developmental therapy, and early intervention. To speak with the professionals you heard today or talk to someone at Leap about your child, you can find us at leapforward.com. That's L-E-E-P forward.com.